Section 5 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 The Struggle in the Council, Part 1. The gradual decline of the English power in France ran parallel with a gradual decline in the Lancastrian power at home. According to arrangements made by Henry V at the time of his death, the care of the young king was entrusted to the two brothers of the late king, John, Duke of Bedford, and Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, acting with the Privy Council as a council of regency. Bedford, who had the superior voice, confined his attention to France. Gloucester was left to preside over the council in England with the title of protector. He expected to be regent in England, but Parliament, which since the accession of the Lancastrians had wielded great powers, refused him. Then, by Act of Parliament, a form of government was drawn up for the minority of the king. Bedford was recognized as protector in France and England. Gloucester was to be protector in England when Bedford was absent in France. The rest of the councillors were nominated to the number of sixteen. The most important after Gloucester were Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, and his brother Thomas Beaufort, Duke of Exeter. This body was intended to give all its time to the business of administration and was paid for its services. Humphrey of Gloucester, while acting as protector, was paid £5,333, 6 shillings, 8 pence a year. The others received smaller payments from the Bishop of Winchester with £200 a year, to Lord Beecham, who received £40. When in the next year a few new names were added to the council, knights received £100 and a simple esquire £40. If a councillor neglected his duty, his salary was reduced, in the case of those who received £200 annually, one pound was taken off for each day's absence. From those who received £100, ten shillings for each day's absence, and so with the others in proportion according to their wages. The nomination of the councillors remained in the hands of Parliament till 1437, when Henry VI, age 15, who took a great interest in politics and government, began to nominate the council himself. This council naturally had immense power. It consisted of the most eminent men in the land, the king was a child and could not act by himself. Parliament, unlike the council, did not sit continuously. Thus it is correct to say that during the minority of Henry VI, the government of England was practically government by the council. When, after 1437, Henry VI began to take an active part in politics, the government of England was by king and council together. If by the middle of the century the administration of the country had broken down, it must be attributed in some manner to the failure of government by the king and council. As might be expected, the work of the council was enormously varied. The records and minutes of the council were carefully kept throughout the period, and they show how industriously the business of the kingdom was attended to. The volume containing the records for the first seven years of the reign of Henry VI proved this. One of the early acts of the council was to sell some of the largest ships of the Royal Navy, a measure of economy which shows the poor state of the government. 
No foreign power except an ally of England was allowed to purchase any of the ships. Next, some of the less important French prisoners, who since their capture at Agincourt had been confined in the fleet prison, were set free. The complicated negotiations respecting the release of the captive Scottish king James I were then taken up. Again, it was resolved that the expenses of the Duke of Orléans, who had been taken prisoner at Agincourt, should be defrayed by himself. Hitherto he had been kept at the charges of the king. The king's nurse or governess, Lady Alice Boteller, was authorized reasonably to chastise him from time to time as the case might require without her being afterwards molested or injured for so doing. Later her salary was raised from twenty-six pounds six shillings eight pence to fifty-two pounds thirteen shillings four pence yearly. Philip, Duke of Coimbre, son of the King of Portugal, first cousin to Henry VI, visited England in 1424. The council arranged for his reception and made the necessary orders for his expenses. The appointments and translation of bishops were taken in hand, 1426, John Kemp, Bishop of London, being appointed to the See of York. The Pope, however, had a nominee of his own, Richard Fleming, Bishop of Lincoln, whom he appointed to be Archbishop of York. But the council vigorously resisted this attempt of the Pope, made periodically throughout the Middle Ages, to control the English episcopate. The Pope, Martin V, saved his dignity by translating his nominee from York back to Lincoln. In the next year, the council issued a declaration of war between England and the Duchy of Brittany. Public order inside the kingdom came within the purview of the council. Rewards were posted for the arrest of highwaymen, and the right of sanctuary, whenever claimed, was carefully inquired into. The council, in fact, seems to have combined all the work of a modern cabinet with a great deal of the work that now falls to the great departments of state. In intention, the government was good and honest, but it was not unanimous. There was nothing like the present system of responsible government according to which one group of men who have the confidence of a majority in Parliament form the whole cabinet. In the reign of Henry VI, although up to 1437 Parliament appointed the council, there was no homogeneity among the members. Those who were reputed the greatest and wisest in the land were chosen as councillors irrespective of their attitude to each other. It is obvious that this system could only work well if the members would exercise a wise tolerance and forbearance toward each other's views. As things turned out, such forbearance was seldom exercised and the council was never able to work wholeheartedly together. The first thing which now began seriously to break up the kingdom was the ambition of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. There is much to be said both for and against this man. He was an affable, popular prince, and was always liked by the citizens of London. He was brave and active, and had been wounded on the glorious field of Agincourt. He was intelligent, interested in science and literature, and a patron of men of learning, for which reason he obtained the title of the good duke. In his early days he was connected with Oxford, being probably a member of Balliol College, and one of his last acts was to leave his collection of books to the university, thus beginning the famous library now called the Bodleian. 
but his ambition was tremendous, so much so that toward the end of his life he was considered to be aiming at the crown. It is not, however, likely that he went so far as this, but he did mean to be chief man under the king, and he was bitterly disappointed when on Henry V's death the Parliament refused to make him regent. The best that can be said for his public policy is that he was consistent. Henry V's wishes in death had been that the French war should go on till the English power in France was made secure, and Humphrey never swerved from this design. Throughout the rest of his life, he was the leader of the war party in England. The struggle in the council falls into two parts. First, the struggle between Gloucester and Bishop Beaufort. Next, that between the Earl of Somerset and the Duke of York. The latter quarrel was only settled when Somerset fell fighting in the Battle of St. Albans in 1455. The struggle between Gloucester and Beaufort was always going on, with every now and then a severe crisis. It must not be considered that Beaufort was always crying peace with France and Gloucester war. On the contrary, Beaufort supported the war so long as England seemed likely to gain anything by it, and he lent or gave large sums of money to the government to carry on the war when the treasury was empty. But as the war dragged on disastrously, Beaufort naturally turned, both as a statesman and a churchman, to advocate peace. Yet what really divided Gloucester and Beaufort from the first was undoubtedly the ambitious, high-handed actions of the Duke. In March of 1423, the Duke married Jacqueline, Duchess of Holland and Hainault. Jacqueline, although still young, had been twice married and had only been released from her last union by a rather dubious divorce allowed by the anti-pope Benedict XIII. At the time of the marriage, she had been living at the English court as her possessions and claims in the Low Countries had made her useful to Henry V. But there was a danger to England from Gloucester's marriage with her. The Duke of Burgundy did not wish to see an English prince become Lord of Hainault and Holland. The marriage of Humphrey did much to rob England of the support of Burgundy in the French War. But Gloucester never stopped to count the cost. In October 1423, he set out from Calais to Hainault, which was then in the possession of Jacqueline's former husband, the Duke of Brabant. Gloucester had with him 5,000 men raised in England. This was fully up to the numbers of the armies usually employed by the English generals in France in the reign of Henry VI. Gloucester won Hainault, but then found himself opposed by the Duke of Burgundy, to whom Jacqueline's former husband had appealed for help. In 1425, Gloucester, leaving Jacqueline in Mons, returned to England to get ready for a duel to which the Duke of Burgundy had challenged him. But he did not return, and Jacqueline, after defending Mons for some time with great spirit, had to surrender to the Duke of Burgundy. Naturally, the council were cold in their reception of Gloucester on his return, and Beaufort, who was the best man in it, had plenty of ground for complaint. Beaufort, in 1422, had been appointed Chancellor. In the absence of both Bedford and Gloucester, he was at the head of the council, and practically vice-regent of the kingdom. This was too much for Gloucester, who complained bitterly of Beaufort's power. In order to vindicate his position, Gloucester demanded entrance into the Tower of London. The captain, Richard Widville, 
who belonged to the party of Beaufort, refused to open the tower to Humphrey and his following of London citizens. Civil war was only averted by the intervention of Archbishop Chichley. Beaufort wrote off to Bedford, As you desire the welfare of the king, our sovereign lord, and of his realms of England and France, your own weal with all yours, haste you hither. By my truth, if you tarry, we shall put this land in jeopardy, for such a brother you have here, God make him a good man. This was written on September 21st, 1425. On December 20th, Bedford arrived in England. He remained till the end of March, 1427, and kept harmony in the government. But affairs in France urgently demanded his presence, and when he returned there, the friction between Humphrey and Beaufort would at once have arisen. Beaufort anticipated this by resigning the chancellorship just before Bedford's departure. Later, in May or June, he left England on a pilgrimage or crusade to Bohemia. Beaufort and Bedford being thus out of the way, Gloucester could again exercise his influence freely in the council. On July 9th, he obtained from the council a grant of 20,000 marks, or 13,333 pounds, six shillings, eight pence, for a new expedition to Aino in favor of his duchess Jacqueline. This was a shameful use to make of the public money, when the war in France was failing for lack of funds, and the garrisons themselves were without their daily pay. The money seems to have been sent to Aino, but Humphrey himself did not go, as he was then living with one of Jacqueline's former ladies-in-waiting, Eleanor Cobham, whom he married next year, 1428. Beaufort, who had been made a cardinal by Pope Martin V, remained for the most part abroad in Germany and in France till 1432. Meanwhile, Gloucester was by no means allowed to have his own way in the council. In 1428, he was sharply told by the peers that he was not regent, but only protector, a very different matter. Beaufort, on the other hand, by his readiness to supply money to the government and by his devotion to the king's service, was steadily gaining more influence. In 1431, he performed the ceremony of coronation on Henry VI at Paris. In the same year, William de la Pole, whom Beaufort had marked out as a useful minister for the king's service, was admitted a member of the council in England. Gloucester tried to oust Beaufort's influence by questioning his right to remain Bishop of Winchester after he had been made a cardinal. This was a knotty point, which the council was unable to decide. So nothing was done at all, and Beaufort remained bishop and cardinal till the end of his life. The ten years from 1430 to 1440 are a period of balance between the two parties in this unfortunate dispute. The logic of facts was slowly but surely confirming the arguments of Beaufort. He believed in making peace, while large portions of France might still be retained. Even Henry V in dying seems to have contemplated the possibility of a peace with Charles VII on condition of young Henry keeping the title of King of France and retaining the duchies of Normandy and Guienne. But while the steady course of disasters after the failure before Orléans seemed to point necessarily to peace with Charles VII, any proposal for peace was immensely unpopular. Hence, Although the wise counsels of Beaufort and his friends in the council, Pole and Kemp, Archbishop of York, had great influence, because they were right, 
Yet the theatrical attitude of Humphrey in refusing absolutely to hear of peace and pushing forward the war in every direction coincided with the popular fancy and helped to keep him at the head of affairs. After Bedford's death in 1435, his position was naturally strengthened, for Gloucester had always been rather afraid of his brother, who acted as a moderating influence whenever he was in England. Moreover, Bedford's death left him heir presumptive to the throne. When the Duke of Burgundy in 1435 left the English for the French alliance, the injured and revengeful feelings of the populace gladly found expression in Gloucester's denunciations and his feverish war policy. So he was proclaimed Count of Flanders, the Duke of Burgundy, through his defection from the lawful King of France, Henry VI, having forfeited this title, and was made Captain of Calais and Lieutenant of the King in France. But his campaign in Flanders in August 1436 was quite unsuccessful, and when he threw it up and came back to London, he ought to have been discredited in the popular mind. But he maintained his position still by his unswerving opposition to all proposals of peace. When in 1440 the Duke of Orléans, who had been a prisoner ever since Agincourt, was at last being released, and in Westminster Abbey was swearing to keep the conditions imposed on him, Gloucester, when the mass began, stalked out of the church. The dying Henry V had only commanded that Orléans should not be released till Henry VI was of lawful age. This was Gloucester's last important act. The peace party was now in the ascendant, the mild and saintly Henry VI was eighteen years old and able to bring his influence to bear on the side of peace. William de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, the friend of Bishop Beaufort, was becoming the king's right-hand man. Gloucester had seven more years of life to run, but the opposition between him and Beaufort might now be considered practically at an end. He still went on protesting, but without effect. The Beaufort party had triumphed and from 1440 to 1450 it governed the country under the king. End of section 5